Good morning. My name is Stephanie Nelson, and with my husband, Casey, and my two daughters, Ingrid and Agnes, we've been members of this church for the past four years, and Randy asked me to share part of my faith story this morning with you. My story begins two years ago, June 28th, my 10th wedding anniversary. I had scheduled a routine mammogram and uh, had scheduled it early so that I wouldn't have to find a sitter and my husband could stay with the girls. But what I thought was going to be a routine mammogram turned into something more. I was ushered from the mammogram tech to the sonogram and then from the sonogram to the doctor's office. And all I remember of that conversation with the doctor was what we have here is one of two kinds of cancer. And my head was spinning, a whirl of fears. And the nurse and the doctor stepped out, and I called my husband. And I said, honey, you're going to have to call a sitter because they have to do a biopsy, and it's going to be a couple of hours so that you can go to work. But instead of saying, I'll find a sitter to go to work, he said, I'm coming, and that sent me and for my first wave of tears. My heart was hammering within me, and as I hung up with my husband, the Spirit brought to mind Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4, a verse my family had been memorizing, which states, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. And I said to the Lord there, Lord, if by my life or by my death, by my illness or by my health, you are glorified, let it be. And I stand here praying that this is that moment when God is glorified by what he did through that season. With cancer, there can be many fears, and I struggled with a number of them. I wondered, how will I survive? Will I even live through this? What will treatment be like? How do I tell my children? How will I do my everyday tasks? Can I keep homeschooling? Something I was passionate about. I wanted to educate my children from home. And how will we ever pay for this? James 1-2 states, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. But how can cancer bring joy? Within a few days of my diagnosis, a sister in Christ and a member of this church, whom I didn't know very well, contacted me through email. And she shared her story, which preceded mine by 10 years. And she took out so many of my fears about treatment and survival and made facing this so much easier. Our dear friend and counselor came over, and he coached us through how to talk with our children about this. And it led to one of the most intimate conversations with my oldest daughter. Our small group ladies had a ladies' night, and um, they lavished on me with dinner and dessert and delightful conversation. And at the end of it, they presented me with gifts, the most precious of which were these sealed cards that I was not to open until I had a bad day because they knew that those bad days might come and I might not have the strength to ask for encouragement. My small group prayed over me, and one of the members of my small group was an elder of the church at the time. 
And he, in accordance with James 5.14, asked if he could have the elders pray over me and anoint me with oil and ask the Lord for healing. It was something I knew was a command, something that I should have asked, but it was such a blessing to me to have him initiate that. As a homeschool mom, I wondered if I could continue this, if we would have to give up on that dream, but two of the members of our small group were also homeschool moms, and one of them offered to roll my daughter into their homeschool day, and the other, we were uh, part of a science group together, and she sent me home many days to just rest. We received countless numbers of meals, and one family offered and (laughs) followed through on cleaning our house about every three weeks. On many occasions, members of this church and and our former church and our small group members would take our children um, and watch them for appointments, uh, some of which were very long and some which were unexpected. At the very end of my treatment, um, my immune system was so suppressed that I ended up in the hospital, and so we had friends who were able to take care of the girls at that time. It was nice to know that I had a safe place for my children, a place where they could go and they could be loved and feel secure. One of the most miraculous ways that we saw God's hand in this whole journey involved an anonymous member of this church who issued a challenge grant on our behalf. And between family and friends, our maximum out-of-pocket was met for both 2012 and 2013. Through this difficult season, My husband, Casey, and I often ask how people do this without Christ and community. And we saw so many who did, who walked this journey alone. Without my firm foundation in Jesus, my Lord and Savior, and without my faith family, both in this church and in others, I don't think we could have come through this full of joy. How can there be joy in cancer? For me, that came when we saw God at work in the church to work in ways on our behalf beyond our imaginings. Without cancer, I wouldn't have seen the church as God intended. Thank you. This is church. This is church. Um, Stephanie's faith story has painted a beautiful picture of um, of church, of community. We are in a series of messages, if you're new here to Windsor Road, and we're just spending some time just reminding ourselves and um, helping our newcomers hear and feel you know, what we mean when we say church, how we define church, what is church, this is church, and, and we're just focusing on one word per week. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about the word worship, and what did we learn? We learned that when we gather here for worship, the most important thing about our gathering for worship is not what we're going to give God, but when we gather, we come to receive what He's going to give us, which is His Word. His word is our life. And and that led us to last week. Because his word is our life, our hearts need to be opened. Where is your heart right now? Is your heart open? 
open to receive the, the seed of God's word. We look at the parable of the sower. and God is sowing the seed of his word in your heart. And if your heart is open and responsive, fertile, then there's going to be growth. We talked about grow. Worship, grow. And then this morning, community. And you, we've already felt and experienced it. Thank you so much to God through Stephanie. Community. What, what do we mean by community? Community is when your elders meet from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. twice a month and spend the first 45 to 60 minutes praying over your concerns that you're going to be putting on, on the tear-out portion of your bulletin. That's community. Community is when you go on a trip to the Dominican Republic with your brothers and sisters in Christ and you have an idea about how you think that trip's going to go and, and then God ambushes you with a sense of love and purpose and meaning and perspective and you come back home with a renewed faith because you made a difference in someone else's life and now you have a better perspective about life and about the stewardship over what God has given you and you experience that not alone but in a community community happens every friday night at celebrate recovery where brothers and sisters cheer each other on because they've been drug free alcohol free porn free anger free envy free compulsive spending free binge eating free codependent free for six months one year three years five years ten years that's community Community is belonging to a small group of brothers and sisters who let you get real and honest about yourself and they listen and they let you dislodge a burden you've been carrying for so long you forgot you had it in your heart you just got used to the weight but they help you let it go. That's community. Community happens in the kindergarten classroom on Sunday morning and the kids are in a circle and a new person comes in and sits outside the circle and then one of the kids turns back and reaches out and grabs that new person's hand and invites that person into the circle. That's community. Community is when you come into this room, you feel like quitting on God. And you say to a brother and sister, I'm here, but I have lost my faith. I'm prayed out. I don't have any more faith. I'm done. And you, you hear that brother and sister say, you're not done. It's okay. I will have enough faith for both of us. Lean on my faith. Let me believe for the two of us today. Today. That's community. Community occurs when we, want, when we love one another with the love that we have experienced, experienced from Jesus Christ. Community is one-way love from Christ for one another. Since Christ has acted for us, we can and we must act for one another. And this is the point of our scripture today. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. You'll find that on page 1007 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, and you'd like a copy of God's Word, just take that Bible that's in the pouch in front of you and receive it as a gift from this church family. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, um, we, we see God's vision of community. And according to these verses, community consists of two parts. And when these parts come together, Christian community is winsome and alive and healthy. As I read these verses in Hebrews chapter 10, I want you to, I want you to listen for these two parts. And they're coming together. Therefore, brothers, and, and by that, the Hebrew writer means brothers and sisters. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you catch the two parts there? Did you hear it? Part one. Part one is gospel truth. Jesus is for us. Jesus is for us, verses 19 to 21. Jesus is for us. And part two, gospel culture. Gospel culture. Since Jesus is for us, we can be, we must be, we need to be for one another. Gospel truth, verses 19 to 21. Gospel culture, verses 22 to 25. And when those two come together, that's community. It's community. What I want to do is just walk through each of these parts, beginning with gospel truth. And, and, and before I do that, allow me to just interrupt myself, because, um, look, here's why this matters. This is a safe place. I hope you've sensed that so far from Stephanie's faith story, our prayer time. This is a safe place. This is a place of grace. When we leave this place, we're going to be going, some of us, to places of ungrace. Tomorrow morning, we're going to be entering a world of ungrace, be that place at our office or the plant or the classroom. And, um, heaven forbid, at home. A daily immersion of ungrace awaits some of us. And when that happens, you know, after a while, the, the mud of ungrace gets, gets on you, <laughs> gets on us to the degree that, you know, we un, unwittingly kind of then share that with other people, right? And so we end up doing the very thing we don't want to do, places of ungrace. But, but in this place right here, right now, 
we have the opportunity to experience grace, to experience a community of grace, and it is so refreshing, and we can breathe again. And it's as if God simply changes the topic of conversation from what's wrong with us, which is plenty, to what's right with Christ, which is endless. And he replaces our negativity and our finger-pointing and self-hatred with the good news of his grace for the undeserving. And who cannot help but come alive in an environment like that? So I want us to see how this community comes together by first considering gospel truth. Gospel truth, which is this. The gospel truth is that Jesus Christ is for us. Jesus Christ has created our community with God the Father by his life, death, And resurrection for our sins, for us. Christ is for us. Now, now, where does that show up in these verses? Well, verses 19 to 21 tell us. What the Hebrew writer is doing is taking his cues from the temple in Jerusalem. He's speaking to a Hebrew uh, congregation, a congregation of Christians with a Hebrew background. And so the temple was simply a series of concentric squares A series of barriers, checkpoints. It's kind of ironic. In the Hebrew mind, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of the universe. It was the meeting place between God and people. And yet at the same time, it was a a meeting place with barriers. (laughs) This is the place where I want you to meet me, but when you get here, you can't get to me. What's that? That's the temple. Why? Oh, we're going to get to that. It's a series of zones. There's the court of the Gentiles and the court of the, the women and the court of, the, uh, of Israel and then the court of the priests and then the most holy place designated for the high priest, the holy of holies. It was a room. 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. It was a cube. And it was, the the walls and the floors laid in gold. No windows. And there was one piece of furniture in that 30 by 30 by 30 room. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. The the box of the promise. It was a box called the most holy place. What's in the box? The Ten Commandments. The staff of Aaron, who was the first priest. And then the jar of manna. How God fed his people every day. That was in the box. Only the high priest could enter that most holy place. And that, once a year. The high priest had to go through this curtain, this veil was a checkpoint, you see. Well, that was a symbol. It represented the very throne room of God in heaven. It was a shadow of something real. And what Hebrews 10, 19 through 21 tell us is that Jesus Christ, our high priest, entered heaven itself, the real most holy place, through his sin-bearing death on the cross. On the cross, Christ said, I will give you my righteousness, I will take your unrighteousness. On the cross, Jesus said, I I will give you my A plus, and I will take your F. I will make it so that you can be one 
with the one from whom all reality derives its being. It's a great exchange. Now, these words first came to first century Christians from a Hebrew background. I mean, we're 21st century Americans. It's hard for us to connect with that. And I suspect that maybe if these verses were written to us today as the first audience, one possibility might be, you, you know when you go through the TSA checkpoint at the airport? You've been through that, right? Take your shoes off. You know, the whole, you, you have to be holy to pass through. And you already know what I'm talking about when I say that word holy. You've got to be holy if you want to pass through. Meaning nothing unauthorized must be on your person for you to get on that plane. That's the deal. That's the deal. But imagine having something you couldn't get rid of on your own. You'd never make it through. You'd never make it through. Christianity says that my sin, my disobedience, my rebellion against a holy God has left me such that I'll never make it through the checkpoint. I'll never have community with God. And Jesus says, I will help. I will be your help. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You put your life in my life, and I'll take you through. (laughs) So I am in him. I am in Christ. I have put on Christ, and God accepts this. God accepts his perfect life, and and like the veil which was torn from top to bottom at the death of Christ, whose own flesh was torn and shredded on the cross, and like the high priest of Israel, you know what a priest is, a priest is a go-between, a priest is a mediator, a priest is a bridge, Christ entered as the true high priest to offer himself once and for all to dismantle that which kept us from God. And the result, the result is the barrier has been torn away and we now have access to the most holy place with fellowship to the most holy person. (laughs) And and as a result, we're clean. We're clean. In Christ, we're clean. That's what's behind verse 22, the phrase, our hearts sprinkled clean. It's an echo to the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 25. And the phrase, our bodies washed with pure water, is a reminder to the Hebrew Christians of what their baptism signified. Baptism is a graphic representation of Christ doing for us what we could never, ever do ourselves. Someone else outside yourself, the great high priest Jesus, has cleansed you of your sin, your guilt. He's for us. He has pardoned us. And we're clean. There's community. Uh, And some of you, Some of you are at the point in your spiritual journey where you need to follow through with baptism. And that's why on September the 28th, uh, after second service, uh, we're going to be providing lunch and uh, I'm going to be teaching a a baptism class for those of you who are ready to take this uh, step in your spiritual journey. And we're, we're offering this class to prepare us for Baptism Sunday on October the 19th. I'd like for you to sign up on your card and turn it in when the offering is passed.
But the point is that we've been washed. Christ, Christ has done this to us. He's cleansed us of our guilt. He has pardoned us. We've accepted it. And now there's community. Did you know 40 years ago tomorrow uh, is the anniversary of uh, President Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon for Watergate? Very unpopular at the time. Um, And, um, you know, there was a, a moment that Richard Nixon pondered whether or not he would accept the pardon. (laughs) Why would he do that? Well, I mean, why would he do that? To accept the pardon implies your guilt, right? And he fiercely denied his guilt, right? Remember? I am not a crook. That's, you know, (laughs) where did that come from? Yeah. His counsel said, take the pardon. (laughs) Take the pardon. And he accepted it. And in accepting the pardon, he was essentially admitting his guilt, you see. Guess what? You have come to a community of pardoned people. We We are guilty who have been declared innocent by grace because someone else was punished on my behalf. We are a community of pardoned people. Listen, listen. This perspective alone needs to inform our understanding of church because you have not come to a community of the arrived. We are not fully who God is making us to be. The the construction project that's going on outside that you see, what a fitting metaphor. Uh, While our facilities will be done sometime first quarter 2015. You're not going to be done. We're not going to be done. We are still a work in progress. We are a community of broken people helping one another find healing in Christ. And that just needs to really sink in, especially when you know, our brokenness gets splashed on one another. We're still in process. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in Nazi Germany, 1938, he wrote an excellent book. I think the best book on Christian community that's in print. It's called Life Together. Bonhoeffer said, Christian community breaks down because we bring our own expectations as to what we think church ought to be or ought to look like. He wrote, innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. Now, I mean, let me make this personal here. In 1989, a 27-year-old pastor moves to Champaign-Urbana. He's got a wish dream of what you know, this congregation ought to look like and can be. He's been taught a definition of success. He has preferences. He's been to seminars and seminary. So he's the smartest man in the room. So he thinks. He has a formula for church growth as if it's a recipe for buttermilk biscuits. Just master the recipe and it'll be fine. It's a recipe that has more to do with cultural preferences of a majority race in a suburban setting 
rather than the life-giving principles of Hebrews 10, 19-25. It's a wish dream. And, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, by sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. And so this pastor's dream world crashes and burns and flames out. And he gets disillusioned, which is the best thing that could ever happen. Why? Well, because once God, in his mercy, has allowed my wish dream to crash with all of its ugliness, I can then humbly proceed by his strength to build his church, not mine, the way he wants it done. So the question Bonhoeffer challenges us with is this. Do I love my wish dream of this church or do I love this church? Randy, I want you to love my church as it is, not as you want it to be. Bonhoeffer says, the one who loves his dream of the church more than he loves the church becomes a destroyer of the church no matter how good his intentions are. I don't know if... What I just said resonates with you. I don't know if you have a wish dream about how you think church ought to be or not, or if you're disillusioned with this church or your church or church. If you are, good. That's good. And the sooner your wish dream dies, the sooner you can begin to look to God's vision and His dream for His church, which is what? Well, this is what we're reading here. His dream is to pardon us and clean us and make a way for us to be with him. That's the gospel truth. The gospel truth is Jesus is for us. He's our foundation. The foundation of our community is that Christ is for us. That's gospel truth. Now let's talk about gospel culture. That's the second part. You see, since Jesus is for us, now there's a culture that needs to exist among us. And the culture summary is this. Since Jesus is for us, we need to be for one another. We need to be for one another. Now, what does that look like? Well, that's the rest of this section here. That's verses 22 to 25, where in a series of statements, starting with let us, we're told what our culture needs to, to, how our culture needs to live in the light of the truth of the gospel. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how. Let us draw near. Verse 22. What does that mean? It means let us draw near to God. It means we have access in Christ, through Christ. Because we're in Christ, we're on the inside. You're a part of the inner ring. The inner ring. It's an interesting phrase. C.S. Lewis coined it. He describes this yearning that we have to belong to the inner ring of whatever group matters most to us at the time. Be it sports, business, education, the arts, local church. The inner ring. I want to be an insider. I want to be on the inside track. Uh, Think Beautiful Mind. Remember the movie Beautiful Mind about... Professor John Nash, 
At the end of this movie, spoiler alert, Professor John Nash, played by Russell Crowe, he sat at the table there in the university, and the professors came to him and placed their pens on the table for him. What what, what did that symbolize? He was in the inner ring. That's what that meant. And we all have this longing, this desire to be on the inside. I'll go so far as to say that God has created us with that longing and with that yearning to be on the inner side, to be in the inner ring. See, our problem is that we get the wrong ring. (laughs) And because that longing is not in and of itself wrong, it can be dangerous because it can make you say things you would not otherwise say or not say things you should say. Let us draw near. It means you've been accepted by the only person who counts. You have entered the ultimate inner circle, inner ring through Jesus. And until you know and feel that you are in the inner ring of the Holy of Holies where the Godhead Himself dwells, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, until you know that, until you know that he's for you and that you're in the most important ring that matters, then you will never love others for their sake. You won't. You'll just love others for, you'll make it about you. But as we draw near to God, we begin to relate to others for them, for their sake. Because gospel truth is that Christ is for us. And that humbles us because it says that I'm someone who needs to be rescued by God's grace. He pardoned us. That box in the Holy of Holies was called the mercy seat. We've received mercy through Christ. How humbling. He pardoned me. I accepted the pardon. That implies my guilt. At the same time, gospel culture empowers us because now we can confidently announce that we are loved and accepted by the one who matters most. The only one whose approval matters most. So, so since we are in Christ and because we now know with full assurance how the most important person in the universe feels about us, I can enjoy you for who, for who you are, not for how you make me feel about me. (laughs) Let us draw near. Verse 22. Verse 23, let us hold fast. What does that mean? That means let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That means there are going to be seasons in your life when you are in a fight for faith and you will be battling unbelief. And it's a battle that you must fight with other believers. Which means this, it's okay for you to come here and say, I'm having a hard time trusting God. I'm having a hard time believing God. I'm have, my faith feels frail. I have questions. I have doubts. It's okay. It's okay. The Apostle Paul was rarely out of community with other believers. He needed them, not just for gospel work. He needed them for his own spiritual health. So he had Timothy, he had Titus, he had Silas, he had Barnabas, he had Luke, he had John Mark, he had Epaphras, he had Aristarchus, he had Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos. 
Once Paul was in Athens by himself, but not for long, he sent for Timothy. Why? Because the culture there was so disturbing, he needed support. And likewise, we need people in our lives who will say to us, he who promised is faithful. He he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. Who is that person in your life? And, And to whom are you saying that? Who's counting on you to battle unbelief? Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. In verses 24 and 25, let us consider how. Let us consider how. I love that part in Stephanie's faith story when she talked about her small group uh, writing those cards because they knew that there was going to be a bad day coming. They, They could see the future. And so... That, that's what we're talking about, thinking up ways. What would help Susan? What does Jim need tonight? Bill, Tom, Mary, how can our group love on others? Let us consider. Let's think about it. Let's consider how we might stir up. I love that word. It really means irritate. Pester. Get in your face. The community occurs when... Believers say to one another, look, look, God wants me to be faithful to my spouse. God wants me to parent well. God wants me to be uh, financially responsible. God wants me forgiving. God wants me anger-free. But God does not want me to be a self-pitying, whining, complaining, grumble pumpus. And when you see that in my life, tell me what I need, even if it's not what I want to hear. I give you the right to do that. Are you open to that? Are you open enough to people to let them come into your life and challenge you? Or are you just modern? Well, I think I should get to define my own morality. I believe in American expressive individualism. It's no one else's business but mine. Okay. You can have expressive individualism or you can have loving gospel community, but not at the same time. You have to choose. You can't have both. And this is why our small groups matter. Brian's going to be coming up here. Uh, Brian Rummery, our adult pastor, he's going to be coming up and talking about the purpose and mission of our small groups and encouraging you if you're not in a small group to consider belonging to a small group of, of, of believers, to sharpen, to stir up one another, to irritate one another toward love and good works. Our, our groups are about empowering one another to love. That's what verse 24 is about. We, we, we meet on mission, and the mission is, is that when we leave, we will have more power to love, more resources to love, more motivation to love, more wisdom to love, and do good works so that when people see those good works, when people witness that love and experience that love, they won't say, oh, you are such great people. No, they'll say, who's your God? I want to worship that God. Gospel truth plus gospel culture. You put those together, it's gospel community. And our community here exists to display the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that beauty is so attractive. Listen, listen. People don't become Christians because they've gone to our website and read our statement of faith and says, well, that makes sense. I'll become a Christian. Now, our 
statement of faith is, is needed. I mean, here's what we believe. Here's truth. But I mean, what people need is they need truth with skin on. And you are that skin. We are that skin. People become Christians because they see the face of Christ on the faces of our lives. They look at us and then they conclude, oh, that's who Jesus is. Oh, he's for us, 19 to 21. Oh, oh, this is what, okay, this is what, this is what Christianity is about. This Jesus has empowered us to be for one another, verses 22 to 25. Jesus is for us. And since Jesus is for us, We must be for one another. So, who needs to feel that you are for them today? Who needs that today? Who needs your love today? Who is missing today who needs to feel your follow-up? Just a simple phone call or a text. A text. I missed seeing you today. Is all well What do you need? How can I pray for you? You you might want to do that right now. Pull out your cell phone. When are you going to think of another time that the pastor is going to let you text during his sermon? (laughs) Wouldn't that be? They get a text from you. Hey, I miss you today. I just am thinking about you. I love you. They're thinking, I thought you were in church. Well, I was. My pastor, you know. I'm serious. How might, think about it. How might being for one another, how might that change the ungrace that is so prevalent today? See, if you stir someone up toward love and good deeds, you, someone lets you into their life. Sometimes in order to be for someone, you've got to be against someone. So that then later on they'll realize, oh, you've been, all, you've been for me all along. Does that make sense? How might that change the culture at your place of business? How might that change your neighborhood when they sense you're for, you're for one another? How might that change this place? Christ is for us. Since Christ is for us, we must be for one another. Gordon MacDonald once witnessed a remarkable display of gospel community. Uh, Gordon MacDonald is a pastor and author. And he saw gospel community take place at at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. This is what he wrote. One morning, Kathy, and I guess her age at 35, joined us for the first time. One look at her face caused me to conclude that she must have been Hollywood beautiful at 21. Now her face was swollen, her eyes were red, her teeth were rotting, her hair looked unwashed, uncombed for who knows how long. She said, I've been in five states in the past month. I've slept under bridges several nights. I've been arrested, I've been raped, I've been robbed. She's now weeping. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore but sob I can't stop drinking sob I can't stop sob I can't Gordon McDonald says that next to Kathy was Marilyn she'd been sober for more than a dozen years she reached toward Kathy she pulled her close 
Gordon McDonald says he was close enough to hear Marilyn speak quietly into Kathy's heart. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. Just keep coming. You hear me? Keep on coming. And then Marilyn kissed the top of Kathy's head. That's community. It's God's vision. Since Christ is for us, we must be, must be, must be for one another. Let's pray.